Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, if you want to go ahead and, and open them to Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul's letter to the newly formed Christians in Rome, we're going to open that to Romans chapter 8. While you're turning there, I just got to share this with you. I appreciate you guys bearing with me. Last time I was up here, I had to pause and ask for some water. Don't know what it was. I got, my mouth got super dry. And if you'll recall, I was telling a story about Ananias and Sephiriah and how they were struck dead in a church service for secret sin. Well, I either had to um, swallow my pride and ask for water on stage or pass out from heat exhaustion in the midst of telling that story. Would not have been a good look if I would have fell out on stage. I appreciate you guys bearing with me on that. Um, we're going to go ahead and read together Romans uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 28. going to go ahead and tell you we're going to be all over the place this morning, uh, but this is kind of where we're going to ground ourselves. Uh, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as small, small creation, and you are mighty in the heavens. Father, we know we live in a chaotic time, but we shouldn't be surprised as Christians as to what we're dealing with, for you have said it in your word, and your word is true, your word never fails, but God, I pray this morning that you help us understand how to walk in joy in this world as you call us to do and how to rest on your promises, how to rest on your power. God, I pray that in the process of that, it brings us to a higher view of you and a higher level of worship and communion with you and your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you open the scriptures to our heart and that we leave here worshiping you. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, their 4th of July weekend. Um, I know I've got a lot of great memories from celebrating um, our Independence Day with friends and family. And got to say, it looked a little different this year, didn't it, than it, than it ever has. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what you did, but, it, you know, I'm used to festivals and, and fireworks shows and, and things like that that are... Um, you know, going on during this time, and in fact, my full-time employer at Paulding County Parks and Rec, we put on a, a, a big fireworks show that's really kind of the staple of our calendar. I mean, we build our calendar around this event, and to see it um, be canceled and to see it um, have to be uh, done with for this year because of the pandemic is truly shocking, and it, it just brings things, um, you know, to reality that we are in some strange times, and life in general just looks a lot different right now. And to be quite frank, not much of it is positive. You know, um, not much of it is positive right now, whether it's the pandemic that has swept the globe and has just taken things that we love and, and put them on hold or completely canceled them or even have taken loved ones off the earth for us. And, and this pandemic has taken many people's lives. Or if it's through the hateful and evil actions of racism that has escalated in this country to a level that I never thought I would imagine, that I could see sinful, evil, wicked acts manifested in racism. It's gone to a level that 
is quite frankly hard to watch and, and really hard to swallow. But in the midst of all that, here's the thing. As Christians, we're still called to walk in joy. We're called to be the light in the darkness as Jesus teaches in the book of John. Now, how are we to do that? How can we do that in all this mess? Well, I'm going to give you a very simple and predictable and, quite frankly, probably boring answer. Here we go. Ready? We look to God. Brilliant, right? We look to God in this mess. But see, the thing is, we look to God for one reason, that he is sovereign over this world. He is sovereignty over this world. And that, world, that word sovereignty is something you'll, you'll see expressed in the Christian faith. That word sovereignty means control. It means direct, having a hand on, decree. All these things describe the word sovereignty. And God is sovereign over this world. He has complete control over this world. But how sovereign is he? How much control does he have? Well, we need to look to Scripture for that. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 through 7, says this, that this is uh, God speaking through Isaiah to the Israelites who were in captive uh, of the Babylonian Empire, and he's speaking hope into them, that men, verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, that I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity. Move over one more chapter, Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm 135, verse 6 says this, And whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And you'll recall in Mark chapter 4, when the disciples were on the boat with Jesus and the storm uh, picked up, and Jesus, the, the disciples had great fear. And Jesus said to them, why do you have little faith? And he rebuked the storm, and he calmed it. And the disciples said to themselves, who is this man that the wind and the seas obey? You see, church, we can walk in joy in this life because God is sovereign, completely sovereign over this world. He's not a bystander that's sitting on the sidelines watching things play out. He's not, he didn't wind this world up and let it go and just whatever happens, happens. No, he is directly involved. He is never caught off guard by anything. Uh, COVID-19 did not surprise our God. Nothing surprises our God. He is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, omnipresent, meaning he sees everything, and he's the ruler of this universe. And sometimes I think we see that it can be a great mystery, like how much control does he have? When does he come in? And we often find ourselves asking questions like this, like if God is control in control, then why is there suffering in the world? And I mean, that's a fantastic question, and it's a fair question to ask, and I think a lot of that is answered in one of the most famous Old Testament stories, 
Um, the story of Joseph in Genesis, beginning chapter 37, running all the way to 50. Um, listen, we're just going to kind of run through this story, but there are two passages that I want you to grab onto, to pluck out, and, and just hold on tight to them. But if you'll recall this story, Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was one of the Old Testament uh, patriarchs that God chose to lead his people. Joseph had about 10 brothers, um, and Joseph was the favorite son. He was the 100% favorite son. And because of this, his brothers had jealousy and hatred for him. And if you recall, Joseph's dad gave him a, a coat that had many colors. And of course, Joseph put this thing on and walked around like a peacock, strutting in this thing. And his brothers didn't take too kindly of that. Joseph also was blessed with a gift. He could interpret dreams, his own and others. He could interpret them and give a prophetic word from God to what these dreams were, and they would play out. And so, one day, Joseph was um, in the fields, and uh, his brother brothers had had enough. Because Joseph gives them a, a dream that he had. He's, fellas, I had a dream one day that my crops will stand high and yours will droop. This moon and the stars, they will bow down and worship me, and you will worship me. I will reign over you. That's what he said to his brothers. And you can imagine they did not take too kindly to this. In fact, they plotted to kill their brother Joseph out of jealousy, rage, and hate for him. But it turns out in the midst of this plot, one of the brothers actually ended up being a saint, Reuben. In all his kindness, he says, let's not kill him with our hands. Let's throw him in a pit. Allow the wilderness to kill him. No blood on our hands. And so that's exactly what they did. Joseph came approaching to work the fields, and they grabbed their brother, threw him in a pit, and left him to die. And the Bible actually says afterwards they sat and had a meal doesn't say anything about remorse or, or, or pain from that event. Nope, they, they sat down and they had lunch um, to replenish themselves from their hard work. But about this time, a large caravan came rolling through. Uh, Midianites, who through the bloodline of Abraham, were known, they were known as travelers and traders, and that's how they made their income. And they came rolling through, and Judah shows grace and sympathy. He says, well, it won't profit us to kill our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. And that's what they did. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. He was taken to Egypt to be a slave, and... Um, he was a slave under Potiphar, who was the chief officer of the ruler, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, at this point in the story, things do start looking up a little bit for Joseph. He, he's actually in a, a pretty decent spot to be a servant. He's in Potiphar's house. But about that time, Potiphar's wife found Joseph very handsome, and she tried to seduce Joseph and to commit adultery with her. Joseph, being a man of God, a follower of the Lord, fought away from it, declined it, and did not commit that act. But Potiphar's wife, she slandered Joseph, saying that he forced himself upon her, raped her, and because of this lie, Joseph was thrown into prison, but the Lord stayed with him. He, his uh, jailer had sympathy for him and mercy for him, and Joseph got to new cellmates. He got two cellmates. You see, Potiphar had servants, cupbearers, and 
baker's, and the cupbearer would serve Potiphar his drinks, and the baker would bring him his food, and these two guys did something to really upset Pharaoh. So he was thrown into jail. They both were thrown into jail with Joseph, and the story says that these two men had dreams that caused them to be very disturbed, very distraught, and they could not figure out what they meant. Well, don't forget, Joseph has a gift. So Joseph interprets these dreams for them. For the cupbearer, he would be restored to his position, uh, his old job, back to normal, life is good. But for the baker, he would be killed at the hands of Pharaoh. About two years pass, and this is actually, well, actually, this dream actually plays out. The cupbearer is restored, the baker was killed, and Joseph told the cupbearer, hey, when you get restored, when you get back to your position, just remember me, all I ask, and he did not. Did not remember Joseph. God can't catch a break. And then about two years pass, and the Bible tells us that Pharaoh has a dream that he's struggling with. He knows there's something heavy to this dream. He knows that something there's something in his conscience telling him he needs to figure this out, and nobody can interpret it. And the poor cupbearer is about to feel the wrath of that. But he says, wait, I know a guy. And they go and they bring Joseph. And Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh and uh, lets him know that this dream means that there are seven good years of harvest for Egypt, meaning there's going to be plenty of food in the land. And then following that, there will be seven years of a famine, no food around. And so, Pharaoh, you need to take advantage of this seven years. Because of Joseph's divine interpretation of the dream, he was lifted to be a ruler of Egypt and actually in charge of gathering this food to supply and save the lives of the people of Egypt. I mean, look at this story. Thrown in a pit, left to die by your own family, lied about, thrown in jail, and now you go from that to the ruler of Egypt. But folks, the story gets even better as we move. In chapter 45, Joseph's brothers... Remember, these evil, wicked brothers were living in their land at the time, and their father Jacob sent them during the famine to go stock up on food and, and go bring food back so that they could survive. And so Joseph's brothers make this journey to Egypt, and here we have a divine encounter between Joseph and his brothers. I mean, this is incredible. A divine encounter between the ones who wanted to kill him, and now he's face to face with them. What would you do? I know in my flesh, I'd be seeking revenge, but this is not what Joseph did. In fact, Joseph embraced his brothers after a series of events. I encourage you to read to get the details of those, but in, the, in chapter 45, verses 5 through 7, we see something truly amazing. We see Joseph tell his brothers. He brings them in, and he embraces them, and he says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these two years and there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Joseph tells his brothers that this was by God's hand. We, I was brought here by God's hand. 
the evilness and the things that have happened and what's put me here is by God's sovereign hand. He worked this together to save lives, to save many lives. And to close this story out, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies, and his brothers begin to feel remorse. His brothers begin to feel guilt that, you know what, Joseph's going to take out some revenge on us. He is going to let all the pain and suffering unleashed on us for what we've done to him. But Joseph pulls his brothers in, and he tells them in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for the good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant it for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He turned all of this and worked it for the good. You see, the story of Joseph should give us hope. The story of Joseph can bring us joy because we see that God is sovereign. God not only knew the actions of these evil men, but he took them and he shifted them and he molded them and he used them in a way that would bring good. He used their evil for the good. Not only the good for Joseph, not only the good for uh, the people um, in, in the land that, were, that, sa- that he saved lives, and not only the good for his relationship with his brothers, but to show God's character and show his glory. All for God's glory. Church, we serve a mighty God who not only created this world, but he is sovereignly in control in this world. He is over evil. He is over pain, and he can use evil, pain, good, bad, whatever, to accomplish his will and his purposes. His will and his purposes. Now, he's not the author of evil. He's not the author of sin. He can't be those things because he is good, but he can take those things. He can take sin. He can take evilness and shift it how he wants to for his will and his purposes. And as we know from what we've read this morning, and we know, verse uh, Romans 8, chapter 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, called according to his purpose. What's the, commit, what's the condition there? Those who love God. God is working for the good for those who love God. Good, bad, whatever. He is working for the good. But what is it to love God? It's to repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ. Those who repent of their sin and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior for the work that he's done, God is working for the good of those. But what's the good? I didn't read you this text, and Paul didn't write this letter to tell you that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be rich. He didn't write that to tell you that you're going to be healthy, that you're going to prosper in all these ways. In fact, Jesus almost suggests the otherwise, that you die to yourself and you let go of yourself. Sure, God blesses and provides your needs. He absolutely does that, but he doesn't guarantee riches. He doesn't guarantee prosperity. That's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is God works for the good in good, bad, or evil. He takes it and molds it and works for your good, for your spirituality for your grounding in Jesus Christ, for your grounding in God, so that when trials come or whatever comes, you are grounded to the one that never changes, and that's God. 
That's what this text is about. And if you read up to verses 26, 27, you'll see the context of that. He's talking about spiritual, your spiritual life. But if we take anything away from this morning, my prayer is that you do one thing when you leave this morning. Is that you take joy in your time while you're here on this earth. You take joy in your life because Jesus Christ is reigning on his throne. He's conquered death, and God is in control of this world, and he uses the works of this world for his glory. And when he's glorified, we can walk in joy. Amen? We can take joy in God's sovereignty. So I want to look at that in three ways this morning. Uh, The first way is to look at, and if you're taking notes, best way to follow along, put three columns, three vertical columns. First one, what God has done by his sovereign hand, what he has done for us, what he has done, what he is doing currently, and what he will do by his glory and his purpose and his plans. So what has God done? What has God done for us to be able to take joy in this life while we are here? Well, God in his love has paved a way for you and I to be free from his wrath. You see, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Without the gospel, there is no hope because we have all sinned against God. Everyone has committed sin against God and broken his law. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 23, Paul writes, and for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, if there's no gospel, if there's no Jesus Christ, there's no resurrection from the dead, we are destined for eternal punishment in hell. That's a hard truth. With no gospel, we are destined for hell. But God, in his love for the world, in his love for his creation, brings us Jesus Christ to redeem a fallen world, a fallen creation. John 3, 16, all the way to 17, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God, redeeming man by sending Jesus Christ, his son, second part of the Trinity, born of a virgin, here on this earth, lived and walked a perfect, sinless life, carried out a perfect ministry, raised up disciples to carry out his word, healed the sick, came for the sinner, and then was falsely accused, wrongly judged under Pontius Pilate, beaten, mocked, whipped, hung on a cross, nailed to a cross, left to die, forsaken, and then he died and rose from the grave. That is what God has done for us to walk in joy. Because we have the gospel and because we have the resurrection of Christ, we can walk in joy because we know this isn't it. And we know the pain here is not greater than what Jesus has suffered, and we know that he is the ultimate king, and he is the ruler, and he's the one that we throw our life to. And we see how God has sovereignly decreed this from the beginning, which is amazing. Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind where all of this began, all the sin in the world, all the brokenness in the world began. 
And as God lays out his curses to humanity and the serpent, he says, he tells the serpent this, that one day the seed of the woman will, you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Meaning wicked, evil men would strike his son Jesus, but he would crush their head. He would crush the serpent's head, meaning he would crush death, pain, once and for all. Amen? He will defeat pain once and for all, and he did it by rising from the dead. That's what God has done for us. And God, in his love and his power and his sovereignty, decreed it from the beginning. In fact, if you read the Bible for the first time and you pay close enough attention, you'll see in the Old Testament, you'll see how these these, these stubborn Israelites and these stubborn people are constantly, constantly failing, constantly breaking God's law, but you'll see these flashes of hope. You'll see these glimmers and little these, these types and shadows of something to come that's going to redeem all of it. Isaiah chapter 53, which we've read a lot of Isaiah, God speaks through him and gives him good Old Testament gospel. The gospel laid out clearly in Isaiah 53. Verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Why that's joy for us is because even from the beginning, God had it in mind to redeem you. He had it in mind to redeem me. He had it in mind to redeem the world through the work of his son, Jesus. Not anything we do. If we put our faith and trust in him, we will experience life with him. We will experience redemption from our sins because God took, or Jesus took the punishment. God in the flesh took the punishment for us. And by faith, we experience that. God ordained this from the beginning. I mean, we can rest on that alone. That's it. We can honestly go home. That's everything. With no resurrection and no gospel, we've got nothing but God gave it from the beginning by his sovereign hand. He worked it by using evil men, an evil plan, and evil thoughts by men, and he used it and redeemed us. That's what God has done and how he's redeemed us. So, and that's how we can walk in joy from what he's done. So what is he doing now? I mean, what's happening now in the world? We see a lot of turmoil. What is he doing now? In John chapter 3, early chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, we see an interesting conversation um, with Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, who was a, a chief Pharisee, who were the law keepers at that time, who persecuted actually fellow Israelites for the law and held the law to an ungodly standard. And so these guys throughout the book of John questioned Jesus. They, they, they persecuted him. They even tried to kill him multiple times until they finally did by God's will. And so we see here in a conversation, Nicodemus is asking him what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 2 it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? But Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Jesus tells us here is that you must be born again to be in the kingdom of God. And that's what God is doing today by the Holy Spirit, making people born again by the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit changes your heart and turns you from sin and to Christ, and you become what's called born again. Paul in the church of Ephesus um, writes this, of what it means to be born again. What are you being born from? If you're being born again, what, what are you having to escape from? And Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of power of the air, and the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived for lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. So he tells these people, you were dead in your sin. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't come to life. But it's by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit that he sovereignly takes a heart and he sovereignly changes a man's life or woman's life. That's what God is doing today. By his sovereignty, through the Holy Spirit, he is changing hearts. And if we're doing what Jesus calls us to do, we're preaching the gospel to other people and the Holy Spirit's changing their hearts. That's what God is doing today. I think the best way we can see this kind of fleshed out is the life of Paul. Paul being one of the, 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 the main apostle of, of our faith who wrote amazing letters to the churches with revelations of God, by God, his words, Paul penned them, and things that we can hang our hat on today. But you see, Paul didn't always have this heart. You know the story. He was originally Saul. He was a man who persecuted Christians, who, who, who saw them to be dead, who hated Jesus Christ, who hated God's word, and was a man of evil and wickedness. No hope for this man. But the Holy Spirit in all its sovereignty changes this. In Acts chapter 9, we see that, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it, that Saul was walking uh, down the road to Damascus to kind of intercept some Christian activity. He wanted to go and persecute more people and, and continue his wrathful hand, but he saw in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened um, as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. God reached out to Saul, grabbed his heart by the Holy Spirit, transformed 
formed him. And Saul went on to be an apostle who led people to Christ and preached God's word in the hardest cities at the time. He faced riots. He faced imprisonment and was ultimately martyred and killed. And he never relented in his faith with Jesus. Never relented in his teachings because he knew what he was called to do. It was by God's sovereign hand. Folks, you can't out the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not giving you a license to sin. Hear what I'm saying. When the Holy Spirit grabs you, it's not letting you go. You may go through seasons. You may go through times of, of doubt or what have you. We see that with apostles in here like Thomas in the Bible. But God, by the Holy Spirit, transforms men, women, makes them born again, and there's nothing they can do because that's how sovereign the Holy Spirit is. In fact, John chapter 6, Jesus has some interaction with Pharisees, and they're arguing, and Jesus tells them that all that the Father gives me, all that, all that come to salvation, I will not lose them. I will raise them on the last day. I will not lose them because the Holy Spirit is that powerful. Now, I know that you may have people in your lives who have fallen away, who have maybe, um, maybe fallen from faith, and you're wondering, well, how can that be true? Maybe it's because they haven't been born again. They haven't been truly born again. I'm not here to question, make people question their salvation, but what I am here to tell you is that the Holy Spirit, if it truly changes somebody, if somebody truly changes and comes to Christ, they will not leave because the Spirit is that powerful. It is sovereign, and you can't out it. You can't run from it. He will change you. What about trials? What about uh, things that um, happen in the world? Well, the Bible calls bad things that happen to us Hard times, we consider that trials. In the book of James, Apostle James writes to Christians who um, were dispersed by persecution from Rome, from uh, the, the ruler of Rome at the time. He was persecuting Christians. He was putting them to death. And, and by Stephen, in the, in the book of Acts, was martyred, stoned to death. And when this happened, Christians were spread out. It's, it's almost like you and I in this church service and something horrible happens. We are persecuted for being Christians, which we do see today. And we get scattered all over the place. And we have no way of communicating with each other, no way of finding each other. That's the context of what we're seeing here. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he writes this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect faith so that you may be perfect and completely lacking nothing. James calls it joy. He calls it joy in the face of trials because a test of faith produces endurance, spiritual endurance. And he says that endurance result is a complete lacking of nothing. He's not speaking to sinless perfection. But what he's, seeking, what he's speaking to is a deeper, a more intimate and closer relationship with Jesus Christ. When you face trials and you ground yourself in Jesus, you become stronger in this. 
That's what we've been talking about this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He works all things for the good. He works all things for your spiritual life. And when you face trials and face this, you must run and ground to Jesus. We ground to him, ground to his words, just like he says in Matthew 7. He built your house on the words of mine, of, of the words of Jesus, and your house will not fall. House of sand, when the storm comes, it will blow away. That's what he's talking about here. Building your words on the life of Jesus. Building your life around Jesus. And it reigns true for us today. I mean, we're facing, everybody is facing some sort of trial and, and problem today. But I encourage you, God is calling. God wants us to ground ourselves in him. That's what James is writing here. These Christians were facing ultimate persecution. And he's telling them, find a way to ground yourself into Jesus. And I think one of the, one of the great ways we can see this is Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Pastor Frank did a series on Psalm 23. If you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was fantastic. But let me tell you about Psalm 23. David, a man chosen by God to be a ruler of his people, he defeats Goliath. Nations feared him. He was the ultimate ruler. He was the king. He had it all. But David falls into sin. He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. As her husband murdered, he loses the child that he had with Bathsheba, loses that child in, in a matter of weeks. Kill, his baby's killed. He has people coming after him. His family has fallen apart. Everything unravels for David. And so he is on top of the world, chosen by God as a king, and then everything comes unraveling by his own doing and by trials. But listen to the words of David in the face of these trials. He writes this psalm. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head in oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is in the lowest point of his life, but he's saying in this psalm, I have nothing. I am completely dependent on God. I've lost everything. And he's saying, I give myself to you. You are my shepherd. You lead me to quiet waters. You lead me through the valleys. A man who has just completely lost everything, giving himself to the Lord. And that's what we have to do. All this it relates to us today. We have to be completely dependent on God. We can't try and shoulder this stuff on our own. Now, of course, we, we need to you know, take action in our own lives and take responsibility for things, but we need to be spiritually dependent on God. He is the one that leads you through this life. He is sovereign over this life. And just like our text, he works all things for the good of those who love God. We have to stay grounded in our belief in that. That's what God's doing today. So he's 
What he's done by a sovereign hand, provide us salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. What he's doing today is changing hearts by the Holy Spirit, turning people to his word, and he's carrying us through trials by his spirit. Now, what will he do? All that's great, but what is he going to do in the future? Probably some of the most beautiful scripture in, in the Bible. You know what's funny? The first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation are the only four chapters you see in the Bible of perfect harmony. Everything else is chaos and, and sinful and repenting from sin. And, and, of course, we have the Gospels, an all-great word. But we see the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. That tells us where harmony will be. It was meant to be in Genesis, and we see it fleshed out in Revelation. But Revelation Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, says this. And these are visions that the Apostle John has of future things to come. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready for a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. And the first of these things have passed. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write for these things words are faithful and true. God, by his sovereign hand and his sovereign decree, will replace this universe, destroy this universe with a new heaven and a new creation with believers bound. We are the bride of Christ and we will finally be adorned with our groom, Jesus Christ. We will dwell with him. We will be fully in love with him, and God will dwell with us. That's what to come by his sovereign hand. There will be no pain, no death, no tears. I mean, just stop for a moment and imagine this. In today's life, imagine this. No pain, no suffering, no failures, no broken homes from family issues, no disease, no racism, just love and God all by his sovereign hand. And we know it's true because he's sovereign and because he writes it in his word. Amen? This is what's coming. This is what he will do. This is what he will do by his sovereign hand. And we don't know when that day will be. Matthew 24, uh, he teaches this. He says, no one knows the day but my father. Now, people are connecting the dots and trying to, trying to make sense of it, but I encourage you just to worship Jesus and be ready for that day. Don't, don't, don't spin your head trying to figure that out. Jesus made it clear we don't know. So, what, how can we take joy in this life? How can we take joy in all this madness? We can take joy because God is sovereign. This world, anything that happens is not Takes, does not take him off guard. When we go through trials or we face situations, we don't, we don't serve a God who's surprised by that. We don't serve a God that says, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. We serve a God who says, you love me and I work all things for the good. I work 
all things for the good. I'm sure Joseph may have had some doubts in that pit. I'm sure David, in all his sorrows, may have had doubts. But God works for the good for those who love his son, Jesus. Not to bring you wealth, not to bring you, make you just this most healthy person, not to make you prosper, although he can bless, but that's not what he's saying. I will work all things for the good, for your spiritual sake, for your grounding in Christ. And I don't know what that looks like in your lives. I, I don't, you know, you've, you've got different things in your life, but just know this, that God is working. He's never stopping. He's always working in this life. So for the Christian, I call you and I challenge you to walk in joy by his sovereign hand. Take confidence and joy in the fact that he's holding this world. Take joy that he's working all for the good. And don't forget these stories like Joseph or this text in Romans that he's working for the good. Stay faithful to him. Completely humble yourself and throw yourself to him. Don't try to carry it on your own. Don't try to be the hero. You're not the hero. Jesus Christ is the hero. He's defeated death. So just throw yourself to him and be the light in the darkness and bring other people who are in the darkness to that light. Now to any non-believers who may be listening or may even be here, there's a truth to this life that you will die there's no one that's going to escape that. In fact, the reason of death is for original sin in Adam. So we will not escape it. And the truth is we will all face God on judgment day. We will stand before that great throne and give an account for our lives, the Holy One, the Creator, the Sovereign One. And the truth is there's two destinations. There's new heaven and new earth and glory with God and Jesus, and there's eternal punishment in hell. That's a hard truth, but it is truth. But God paved a way for you to escape his wrath, and it's nothing of your works. It's nothing you do. It's no good things you do, but it's complete faith and dependence and repentance of sin and just complete faith in Jesus Christ who took the punishment of sin, who took your punishment on the cross died a death, rose from the grave, and that is available to you through your faith and by God's sovereign hand. So if you're listening or you're here, man, don't try, don't leave here or don't walk away from this. God, I've heard of one of our elders, Cliff Evans, say this multiple times when he's on stage. He said, there's, there's, there's a reason you're here. It's no accident you're here talking about in our service. God knows you would be here. You know why that is? Because he's in control of it all. He's sovereign over this world. Don't lose this opportunity. This is God's grace being poured out. Accept it by faith. Repent of your sin. And walk in joy in this life, Christian, because he is sovereign. He's in control. And he works all things for the good of those who love him and believe in him and have faith in their son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we, we recognize who you are. 
creator of the world, sovereign over the universe, you are holy, righteous, and good. Quite frankly, God, we don't measure up. But you are loving. You paid a debt for us that we could not fulfill ourselves, and you redeemed us of sin, and now by faith in your son Jesus, we are saved. And it all comes from your sovereign hand. God, my prayer is that everybody, everybody can take joy in the fact that you reign. Take joy in the fact that you are working. Whether it's a bad situation, no matter what it is, God, you are working for the good. You gave Paul the strength to write in Romans chapter 11, verses 33, 36, that you're, you're, you're your, your judgments are unseekable. We can't make sense of it, but what we need to do is trust you by faith and walk in joy in your control because, God, we are completely dependent on you. So, God, I pray that every person listening, every person presently here, and every person in the world throws themselves to you, depends only on you, and let you, by your sovereign hand, work for your purposes. God, when you're glorified, we can walk in joy. We want to find your glory even in this madness. God, I pray that we walk in joy. I pray that we proclaim your name. And I pray that you let us sanctify ourselves in your son, Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.